Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, one of Australia's most respected novelists and literary academics, here to chat with us about his latest novel, Street to Street. Brian Castro, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Now, before we begin talking, can I ask you please to open the show by just reading to us a little bit from Street to Street? Sure. Okay, this is a chapter on um, Christopher Brennan. This is around about um, 1900, something like that. And he's uh, trying to get a job at Sydney University. Of course, he's a poet. He's also an alcoholic. Um, and uh, so he's, asked, he's being asked to uh, go in for an interview. Christopher Brennan turned up in his black overcoat for the interview at the university. He had been at the back of a tram all night, asleep between the last seats, snoring across stations and suburbs, rocking from Parramatta to Circular Quay and back again, sleeping like a baby, until the conductor found him on the morning shift. He smelled of tobacco and alcohol. The professors made him sit outside for three quarters of an hour. There were five gowned men around a table. One kept on his head a velvet Tudor bonnet. He was obviously the one in charge. The senators plotted. Have you read his poem called Trees? Not a great title for a poem. It was an unutterably sad poem, though they could not see this. The tone is languorous, said one. Tristesse, perhaps? No, it's obscene. Probably post-coital, said the man in the bonnet. That did for Brennan. He was called in, he who was hatless, collarless, unshaven. He had tried to make himself respectable in the quadrangle, smoothing back his long hair with water from the hole-in-the-wall toilet. He put his huge Peterson pipe in his top pocket to make himself appear thoughtful. He struck poses to relax himself, clutched his old briefcase under his arm, rattling the two bottles of whiskey he had therein. That wouldn't do. He wrapped his scarf around each and replaced them gently. The ante-room smelled of waxed floors in high summer and suddenly he grew despondent. He scribbled something on a dirty sheet of paper with a pencil. We sat and twined an hour or two beneath pine trees. The loneliness of the gaps in his lines pained him. It was something suspended, not given to him whole, and that was why he hated his existential disposition, living in Australia without rhyme or reason, without, as the Italians say, trauma, plot, planning not made for greatness, not today at least. He was ushered into the Senate room. Take a seat, Mr. Brennan. He tried to smile and placed his briefcase at his feet, held onto it fast between his ankles. When he left, he would consume its contents, a reward. When he would have endured all this humiliation without the offer of a job, he would find comfort in Hyde Park, far from these buildings which continually mocked him for his class, his Irish navvy build, and in the long hours, far from sleep, in storm and rain, he would live another life. Uh, Mr. Norman Goff, the Chancellor was saying, committed suicide, as you well know. He did not know. Rather unfortunate circumstances. He did not know that either. Some lurid scenes flashed past. In a hotel room, with his trousers down, was that the best way to go? caught in duckweed in the Lane Cove River. We need a lecturer in modern literature, and that is why you're here, to convince us you're the best man for it. Isn't that the case? He nodded. Modern literature could mean anything from the theatre of Aeschylus to the poetry of Mallarmé. He was badly armed for all the other symbolists knocking around Paris. He would have to travel, and on this salary, quite possible, 
could see himself sitting at a cafe in the Café de Philosophe, translating intelligent women through bottles, listening for rich glottals and wine burbles. And he felt a monologue developing, but not now. Don't ruin it with declamation. He could try classical Greek and ancient Latin. No, lest the senators rule him arrogant, too presumptuous, he should outline his course. He had prepared this in the tram. Gerard de Naval, he began, should be a good place to start. Uh, no, Mr. Brennan, the Chancellor said, modern literature in English, like Pater, for example. Oh, yes, he could do Pater, but he preferred Milton. When does the modern begin? When can literature cross borders? He couldn't see why modern literature had to be English literature. Of course he would lecture in English, but the French were ahead of the game. We should be apprised of that. I write regularly to Stéphane Malamé, he ventured, lying, and hoped he had made an impression. The senators blinked. You're an eager fellow, we grant you that, but to keep to Mother England, and you won't go wrong. After all, this is the university, and not a public library for self-improvers of the wild and woolly sort who go there to sleep because it's warm. No, Mr. Brennan, you are well qualified and practice poetry writing, which we are informed is rigorous but unruly in its passions. Ah, yes, he concurred. I will rule my lines. They didn't think they were being mocked and would let him know their deliberations in due course. He shook hands, lifted the briefcase with its bottles, put it under his arm, and though covered in sweat, thought he needed his scarf to appear less beastly, more refined and the bottles rattled in the corridor, and the senators were listening to the clinking with each step he took. A strange man brought low, they said. He secured the appointment, a permanent assistant lecturer. He was 39. It was 1909, and it was all before him, wife, children, in-laws. He would never fly free again. Well, I, I just love that passage. There, there's so much going on there that really, um, in many ways, encapsulates some of the broader themes in the book. I mean, things like the creative process, um, which, which we were immersed in, um, the notion of being without rhyme, reason, or plot yes. as a character. I think, um, you know, Christopher Brennan was so overlooked, um, obviously, you know, um, through through his own downfall, and in fact, uh, he, he was his worst enemy. But um, he was certainly one of the most erudite and um, interesting people around at that time, and 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 certainly a great scholar and a, and a very very good poet. Um, and I think that that's what um, kind of intrigued me about um, the underdog, you know, the the people who are never recognised, and, and uh, that that seems to me to happen quite regularly in Australia. You know, um, I remember Henry Lawson wrote. Um, uh, that, uh, you know, if you wanted to be a writer in Australia, you should get a looking glass, get a pistol, point it at your head. <laughs> and, 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 and that was, you know, that was the, his idea of, of what being a writer was. Um, yeah, so, so Christopher Wren intrigued me, but I didn't want to write um, a literary biography, as it were, um, or a critical biography. I, I, I really wanted to focus, because this is a double narrative. It's a, it's a narrative also... Um, on his his contemporary uh, his uh, current day biographer, um, who, who's finding the task um, really uh, not up to his uh, his uh, energies, uh, because he started to become Brennan. He started to drink. He started to um, you know, uh, he lived the life uh, as a biographer. And so I wanted to focus on this idea of the art of biography um, that um, not many biographers um, get some of the limelight that. Uh, that writers get, or, or historians, or you know, scholars. 
In, in many ways, it's a triple narrative, really. Yes. A triple biography, in fact. Yes. Um, you mean there's a third kind of shadowy figure? Yes, yes. <laughs> a Labradore. Yes. <laughs> yes, he, uh, he's kind of the observer of it all, and obviously he comes into play at the end. Um, but, uh, yes, I wanted to also to look at that complexity of narrative that is that is happening. Um, it seems that someone is always watching <laughs> in, some, in people's lives, um, and not, not all of it is noted, not all of it is documented, but uh, some of those really interesting things about people's lives are the most ordinary things, and I think that that's, that's to me anyway, um, very interesting. Yes, and then in, in that passage you read, there's this lovely play, too, between, I guess, the university as metaphor, uh, sort of a metaphor of the, the perhaps the formal biography or the formality yes. of um, uh, you know of this world, as opposed to the wild and woolly sort. Yes. Um, I think um, you know the, the, the world of the university hasn't uh, has changed a lot, obviously, in terms of its corporate um, strategies. But uh, by the same token, um, it's this departmental kind of division. Uh, of what is literature, what is English literature, what is, uh, you know, and, uh, and you know, in, in old stayed sandstone universities like Sydney University in the 1900s, uh, they, they, they couldn't come at the, uh, you know, the comparative literature, the, the crossing of boundaries, the uh, looking at other literatures. And Brennan was, of course, totally fluent in, in French and German, as well as uh, being able to converse in, in Latin and in ancient Greek. So, uh, you know, one of the great stories was that he could recite the first four books of Milton uh, while sitting at lunch. <laughs> and uh, and somebody uh, wanted to catch him out, so they had the book under the table and they were following every word and every line and he only missed four words in the whole time. Um, <laughs> and he gave his lectures, you know, totally impromptu. Uh, he never prepared anything. Um, and, of course, he was most of the time drunk um, and sometimes he would miss lectures and, of course, at one time, um, he uh, he fell off the stage and um, in the lecture room, in the lecture hall, and uh, one of the students uh, was recorded in the first row um, was was Christina Stead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you know, I, it, it is interesting. I, I know that you've spoken about this book as a, a study of failure. Mm. And about loss and failure as a subversion and, and an empowering. There's this kind of interesting play going on in this book about the notion of how we perceive failure. Uh, you know, Brennan and Costa do fail in many ways. They fail those that love them. They fail at conventionality and, and certainly they fail at responsibility. Mm. Um, but certainly Brennan's work doesn't fail. No, no. Um, it, it, it lasts and it will last um, no, not at all. But I think that's the fate of a lot of writers, um, that, you know, those who are remembered um, are, you know, are the good writers who, who were usually overlooked. Um, so, you know, failure is actually um, a double-edged sword, I mean, in, in terms of one's posterity and one's posthumous fame, it's, uh, it's obviously going to continue. But um, with uh, contemporary, uh, you know, life and, and, and money and living and all of those things are, are so difficult, um, and it's getting harder, I think, for literary writers rather than those who are airport sellers, let's say. So does success bring with it perhaps busyness? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think it, it brings a kind of, um, well, you know, really successful writers when you hear them being interviewed. I'm not saying this generally, but uh, on the whole, um, there doesn't seem to be a person behind it. It's so professionalized and... Um, 
and you know they don't make mistakes and it's <laughs> it's uh, it's all so smooth and um and I find that they're no longer themselves perhaps and um you know there's this double self that's going on all the time and I wonder if one loses the real self in time um and that's why maybe failure is the corrective at least to that um to that giddiness as you as you say um uh, in 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 uh, attracting you know all the attention all the fame etc it's uh, it's not good I don't think for a writer and i suppose the freedom just to bleed to bleed in the work yes yeah uh, absolutely and i think the freedom also not to be co-opted by um any of those um, movements and ideas and you know uh, <laughs> the 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 freedom to to actually say that if i'm not being paid to be politically correct or being paid to be uh, you know this and that uh, to to sell my books then you do have a huge amount of freedom um yeah yes and and perhaps freedom from genre as well absolutely. which can be quite a constraint absolutely mm-hmm. i think one of the great prisons of our time is the generic one um and uh you know um i i think as as time goes on uh we are losing this idea of literature i think i i, I might be being a little bit passeist but uh i think the idea of literature is no longer valued in that kind of way that it's hard to achieve and yet you know it has a certain aura um that that glass and it's always a test of time obviously that when anything is is any good or not and uh we now live so ephemerally that uh you know it's about the next day's five minutes of fame and uh, and then the next book and so it goes on and and i i'm starting to be very skeptical of um of people who keep producing you know more or less the same thing Mm. Yes, uh, there is something. I mean, it's. I suppose at times, street to street is certainly not a happy book, <laughs> not a, a chuckle sort of happy book. But um, you you have said in a previous interview that the imagination is always stronger than reality, and that does seem to me to be a pertinent point through the book. The imagination sort of changes and transcends the difficult reality of Brennan and Costa's personal life, and that it is kind of a happy ending in its way. Mm. Mm. It is because there's a continuity there. Um, probably shouldn't just reveal what the ending is, but <laughs> but yeah, there is a continuity, and 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 that is that is in a form of uh, posterity, I suppose you could say. Um, yes, and it's uh, it's really a melancholic book because I uh, I'm writing a, a book at the moment um, on melancholy uh, and the creative um, urge, if you like. Um, so a lot of it is uh, you know age old. It's since the ancient Greeks and. uh certainly during the renaissance uh, there was a, a a huge focus on the idea of um of artistic production and melancholia and then of course the romantics picked it up and um brand with it in a, in a, in a properly detrimental kind of way because it lost its um its value as uh, as something so let's talk about the title yes. street to street in both its literal sense and the metaphorical one mm-hmm. well street to street is from a poem a line in a poem by Christopher Brennan. Uh and he begins out with the yellow gas as fire from street to street and it goes down to the wharf at the end and he it's kind of a spearing poem because uh, by the end he's saying that this is, you know, Australian culture as it were, or Sydney culture that he's experiencing that just going into the water in the oily waters of the harbor. And it's kind of um in a way the same despairing critique of modernism of 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 uh uh the city that Baudelaire was applying 
uh, that, you know, we need to get away. You know, in Baudelaire's poem, Invitation au Voyage, he's, he's talking about, uh, let's get away, let's go to the places of desire, uh, however we can't, you know, we're stuck in this gritty, horrible, uh, city-fied uh, atmosphere. And uh, so, in one way, I attached to Brennan because of this great despair, uh, the sphere of the way that uh, the modern city was becoming, uh, the way that, um, well, I guess in his uh, uh, context, he was always yearning for elsewhere, you know, he was yearning for Germany, for France, for Europe, and he could never get there because he's, you know, never going to be rich enough to travel. Mm. It's interesting, too, this notion of yearning to be elsewhere, that's another sort of sense that I, I color, and, and not just elsewhere in terms of place, mm. but perhaps elsewhere in terms of time and in terms of identity. Yes. Uh, well, um, you know, he he obviously was uh, someone who, who as, um, and I can't quote exactly off the top of my head, but somebody in 1936 wrote an obituary or a letter in the City Morning Herald, and they said he, he'd always come from somewhere else. Uh, he was from distant times and distant places, uh, not, not part of our era at all. Um, and that kind of rang a bell because, you know, for me, poetry is also the place elsewhere. And uh, it's yearning for something, uh, not not the grass is greener on the other side of the fence or anything like that, but the notion that, yes, poetry and writing and literature is a place somewhere in, beyond the mind. Um, and that's what I think he was doing. Uh, and, and the despair that he was feeling, the melancholy that he was feeling, was essentially uh, the notion of, uh, I want a place inside my mind. And he was trying, striving so hard for that. And that's why mm. his great poem, The Wanderer, uh, you know, it doesn't really name places. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, in all of his poetry, there's only once where, and I might be wrong, but there's only once where he mentions George Street in Sydney, and that's it. <laughs> you know, and, and all of his oeuvre, all of his whole work, you know, you don't get the sense of there's a named place uh, because it's not, that's not home to him. That, that, you know, home is... Home is somewhere uncanny. It's uh, you know, it's un, unhomed, unhoused. Um, he's the wanderer. He's he's the poet uh, that's not really feeling very much at home at all. But he's stuck there. <laughs> yes, home, home as in Ithaca. Yes, yes, yes. That sense of yearning yes, for a home. Absolutely. Mm. Yes, I, I wonder if that's not kind of a part of all poets, for us <laughs> really that longing for home. Certainly, I think. Well, you know. Um, I may be wrong because I'm not a poet, but uh, poetry, a poem, is a sense of place. Uh, not not a name, geographical GPS place, but uh, that that notion of putting you in the situation for that particular moment. Um, that's why you know I admire so much those those kinds of poets like Seamus Heaney, uh, who can actually use recollection to put you in place. You know, many many years hence or beyond or before. <laughs> And uh, I, I find all that you know, fascinating. Mm. It's, a, it's a function of language. Yeah. Yes. And, and what about Costa's own work? Um, we only know a little amount about it. His hot dog book, for example. <laughs> uh, look, I, I tried to make a, a, a bit of a um, you know lightly uh, light humour with 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 that. But um, a biographer, and that's why I think uh, you asked me last time. Um, uh, why, for instance, the women uh, don't get much of a voice? Because it's, it's actually, I'm writing a novel or a novella, but the biographer's 
task or mission is to be um, sort of um, obsessed with his subject. Uh, so Costa is obsessed with Brennan. He's idea, ide uh, idealizing Brennan. Uh, and I think that that's why, you know, there's no room for other voices, as it were. I'm not being misogynist or anything like that, but uh, I'm not getting into the, the free and direct speech or, or the minds or the stream of consciousness of others. Uh, so all I'm at the moment in Street to Street trying to do is say Brennan and Costa is obsessed with, uh, with Brennan and the way that Brennan wasn't recognized and the way that this reflects back on his own failure. Mm. And yet when I was reading the work, I mean, def definitely Brennan is a clear voice, but I, I felt as if Brennan, Costa, and the Labrador, of course, that their voices were working interchangeably at times, uh, almost as a, a united and then splintering and then united again narrative. Yes. Um, I think they speak through each other. Um, uh, one of Brennan's theories about poetry was um, the idea of metempsychosis or transmigration of souls. Now, he didn't take that literally, obviously, but... Um, he said that you know other poets from the past speak through him, and in a way he's kind of the bard. Um, you know, even though he's, he, I don't think he was as arrogant to think that you know somehow Shakespeare is you know, uh, voicing himself through him. But by the same token, one, one, when one reads literature, one is um, uh, being a bit of an archaeologist, you know, digging up the past in, in terms of language. And, and that recuperation of those kinships in language uh, that kind of come together uh, in the unconscious is, is what poetry is about, I think, and that gift of language because of the fact that not only does one read, but because one is observing and one is experiencing the idea of language is the essential thing uh, about literature and poetry. Mm. And I was so hoping you would use the word metempsychosis again so I could say, oh, rocks. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brendan actually wrote something. I can't remember exactly where, but, uh, you know, he said when I'm on the tram or train or whatever, you know, suddenly these voices burst out within me and, and uh, yeah, these lines appear. Um, of course, being someone with a prodigious memory, you know, he could recite Milton, he could recite everybody else, Aeschylus as well, in the ancient Greek, um, you know, these, these words must have a kind of gritty residue, uh, you know, that, that kind of connects with, with his contemporary situation. Mm. Yeah. Now, when we last spoke, you, you mentioned, um, to my surprise, to be honest, um, that you're, you're in something of a fallow between books period. Mm. Um, but of course, you do have your project on melancholy. Yes. So do you, do you see the nonfiction work as being quite separate creatively from the writing of fiction? Yeah, it's, it's, it's totally different. Um, you know, cognitive. Uh, look, I may be prejudiced because I'm a creative writer, but uh, to write cognitively to write uh, academic scholarly works is so much easier, let me say. Uh, I'll be condemned for this, for sure. But uh, because you've got works to work with, and you've got references to make, and you've got ideas to join together, but you can't do this in fiction because you can't show off in that sense. Nobody's going to take the time or, or, you know, they're going to be completely bored. Uh, and I think one of the things uh, about fiction is that you're constantly repressing yourself. And that's why uh, I find that uh, it's such a hard task, but at the same time such an inspiring task that's just understating everything. Um, but, yeah, I'm doing this melancholy book, um, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting because you know, melancholy is a favorite theme of mine, as it were, but I've got to actually explain it and set it out and... Uh, uh, and be clear and concise and you know well structured, 
for 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 the academic readers out there. Whereas I know that my literary readers would uh, simply say, okay, you know, give us the nuance, give us the undertones, give us the the irony, <laughs> and we'll pick it up. And the metaphors, of course. And the metaphors, of course. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. And I, I found the same when I was in academia. Uh-huh. That, that, um, you know, that it was quite a different side of the brain, quite a Absolutely. different process. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of my lectures that I have to give here, um, even though I quite enjoy it, is, is to start off with that, you know, the two different halves of the brain, um, you know, the creative side and the, and, the, and the logical side and the language side and the, you know, logic, uh, uh, rational side. So, so you know, the two should meet, I think. Um, in some of the best writers, uh, they should meet, uh, that one should interrogate the other side and, and always, you know, work from that. Um, and I think that, you know, missing one side is, is, is a loss, um, whichever, whichever side one is on. Um, but I think that creative work is always going to be fraught with that notion that, oh, it isn't rigorously scholarly. But then again, that's a prejudice as well, and and um, I think that uh, you know one of the one of the things that I'm always looking for. Um, some of the French theorists, for instance, you may not call him a theorist, but Roland Barthes was you know probably one of the great writers, um, and you can see his expression, and you can see the way that he jumps onto concepts. Um, he doesn't have to be really boring. He doesn't have to turn sentences around. He doesn't have to go into ancient Greek to tell you, you know, all kinds of things. But he can actually just explain uh, without explaining. Yes, yes, that clarity. Yes. But of course, there's blood. There's blood in fiction, which I suppose is you don't have so much blood. No. <laughs> it's not quite such a, a vein-opening exercise to do the nonfiction. Yeah, yeah. I, I mm. think so. I, and yet, I almost see this. I mean, maybe it's quite satisfying for you. You know, I almost see this thread of melancholy as being quite, quite intrinsic to street to street. And maybe to extract that and start exploring that as a follow-on is something that, you know, I can see how that would be satisfying for you. Yes. Um, well, you know, melancholia has been denigrated, I suppose you could say, and rightly so. That is kind of male romantic myth. Um, and that you know the females are always portrayed as sort of depressed rather than melancholic, and and you know they're domesticated and they're in, at home and they're bored and and uh, the rest of it. But um, yes, I can see all that, and it is gendered. Um, and I also see the fact that uh, melancholy is, uh, I think, across the board. If you looked at Virginia Woolf, you wouldn't say she committed suicide because she was depressed. You would say she committed suicide because. Well, partly because uh, she she lived in in, in total melancholy, um, and that um, any thinking person, I think, uh, afflicted with the idea that art is ninety percent failure, uh, is is somebody who's going to actually, if they're going to conquer that that percentage, uh, someone who's going to be inspired beyond what what uh, normal, uh, let's say, um, standard uh, you know writers writers do. Um, and so, you know, it's not in the extent. Um, I think, uh, yes, certainly throughout history, from the ancient Greeks onwards and the, and, and the Renaissance, uh, through people like Ficino, you know, they romanticised the notion of genius and melancholy and sadness, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what I'm saying is that we are over pathologised um, and clinically classed all the time, whether it's men or, or women. 
at this very moment, uh, and it's uh, it's wrong because uh, one thing is that we we really need, I think, as creative people, the right the right to be sad. Um, you know, we need our time down. We need our our sadness uh, because that produces, uh, I think, a whole lot of work that we need to work through. We need that's the process that we need to to, to digest and, and work through. Hmm. And, and yet, I suppose, like genre, um, and we discussed this a bit before, but like, like genre, it's never an isolated thing. I mean, you can never necessarily say melancholy sits on its own, you know, as a, as a whole emotion, because there's always so many sides to it, yes. such as the absence of joy or a memory or, yes. you know, whatever it is that yes. is that's feeding into it. Yes. Feeding into it. Um, well, look, my own working methods uh, are very much melancholic. Uh, you know, I mean, there are moments in which I have to prepare, not that I have the time to do it at the moment, but you know, prepare for three months of of uh, just sitting in that kind of... Not, it's not a depression because depression is paralyzing and perhaps I could classify it that way if if I, if I could and should, uh, that depression can actually just make you immobile uh, and that's, that's what you can't do. You're in a dark room and you can't get out of it. Uh, that's something else again. But I think uh, in order to create, uh, you do need just the solitude and you do need the sadness, and you do need to prepare. It's like an athlete preparing for a race. Um, and, and before you get into the zone, um, it, it is a moment of serenity, put it that way. It's not a moment of huge joy or, or you know, great manic inspiration, although a lot of people who are in the creative fields are bipolar. Um, I've never been bipolar. <laughs> I've just been one edge of it, um, or one pole of it. Uh, so in one sense, it's um, it's saying that the the suffering that you have to go through uh, to actually create the work. Now, this might be sounding very shallow and romantic to some people, but I, I think it kind of works for me that the suffering that one has to go through is what makes the work work. Um, and obviously the reading and everything else that's come before then. Um, but, you know, unless there's that element of suffering, uh, the work actually cannot, cannot be uh, produced. It cannot be something that's really of great value because, again, I think all good creators and writers are self-critical, you know, and everything you produce, you you really hate. Um, you really hate to a certain extent until the time at which things come together and then you can say, okay, I pulled it out of the drawer again, I've looked at it, you know, three months ago. It isn't so bad. <laughs> it just kind of works. Um, and that's the process. It's a, it's a process of aesthesis. You know, it's suffering. It's it's what uh, said about the ancient monks and etc. You you suffer through that, and by that you are kind of redeemed by the work of art. You sacrifice yourself to that. Yes, I mean, I, I guess that's life too. Yes. Really, you know, the Buddhist notion of what life is about. Mm. Well, that's wonderful. Look, we we are. Now out of time, okay. but it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maggie, and I appreciate uh, your time too. Thank you. Listeners, don't forget to join us next month when we speak to Paul Newman, the author of Thin Rising. Bye for now. <laughs>